Hello, and welcome back to another spooky episode of Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. I'm your host, Chappie, and let's get started. Alright, let's get started. New Orleans is one of the most haunted places in the world, so it's no surprise that reading on uber.com, uh, they have a blog of where writers and drive partners can send in their spooky stories and paranormal experiences and submissions for New Orleans top their list. Um, everything from Madame LaLaurie to freaking out over ghostly vermin, the stories are bound to get you in the spirit. The first one comes from Jonathan. When I was a DJ at a club on Bourbon Street, we were pretty slow one night, so it was easy to see individuals on the dance floor. I looked out and noticed a man in a black suit standing at the far corner of the room. He stuck out because of the way he was dressed, but I didn't give it much thought. A few seconds later, other people were headed in the same corner, suddenly stopped and went to another area to dance. Not knowing why they detoured, I again thought nothing of it. Later, I saw the same people at the bar, so I asked them about it. They said it felt cold and uncomfortable, so they decided to relocate. The man was seen a few more times with the same reactions from patrons. Spooky. Corinne. <laughs> Once upon a time, there was a girl who moved to New Orleans with her loving boyfriend. Her boyfriend got a job on a cruise ship and had to leave. Then the girl started hearing scary noises coming from the closet. So in true New Orleans fashion, she bought incense and Palo Santo to drive out the spirit. However, it turns out that mice and roaches living in your walls do not care about potent incense. That one's silly. Alright, this one's from June. Marie Laveau was a well-known voodoo priestess in New Orleans. One time a friend came to visit me, and we went on a tour of the tomb. It started at 10pm, and it was very dark and eerie in the cemetery. We laughed about bringing ghosts back with us on the way home to my friend's hotel. The next morning, we both had spooky experiences to tell each other. He had said he was awakened in the night, feeling like something was sitting heavily on his chest, holding him down. Eventually, the feeling left, but he was frightened, and he had heard footsteps on the outside wooden balcony outside the door of his hotel. It also, I also had a ghost story that same night. I had a very lucid dream of a man with bright green eyes and long dark hair lying next to me. He had long sleeve white shirt on with ruffled cuffs. He was trying to talk to me. I was completely awake when I heard the TV in the kitchen come on by itself. It continued to do that for months. Let's just say my friend never came back to visit. Right? Eric. My ex-wife is Native American. For as long as she can remember, spirits have followed her wherever she is. On this particular night, we were lying in bed, falling asleep. I set out my digital recorder to see what would happen. After about 11 minutes of listening to the floor fan and my snoring, the record or the recording went silent and made an electronic noise, and then a voice said, "Hi." In addition to that, we've had numerous stories of activities in the apartment, like doors randomly opening and feeling like someone's sitting next to you on the bed. It's been like that for years. All right, we'll wrap it up with Whitney. 
Being a recent tour guide in the city of New Orleans, there's always a story to tell. I will never forget the time I saw Madame Lollerie. While giving a haunted history tour one night in the month of December, I came upon 810 Royal Street, the home where Madame Lollerie once lived. The story of Madame Lollerie would make anyone's flesh crawl. Madame Lollerie is notorious for the horrendous things she did in the past. While telling the tourists a spooky yet true story about her, something began to happen. The lantern on the front door began to click off and on. We all heard screams coming from inside the house, and a shadow of a woman dressed in 1800s clothing was seen on upstairs. This isn't the first time people have experienced these type of things at 810 Royal Street. People believe the cries are the tortured spirits, and the shadow was Madame Lalaurie overlooking the French Quarter. Ooh. All right. What a way to kick off our New Orleans episode. Let's take a short break and be right back at it after this. Welcome back. The Secret Ghosts of New Orleans. And this comes from ghostcitytours.com. Anyone who has visited New Orleans knows that we are a city full of ghosts. Most days, it seems you cannot walk a single block without seeing a poster or advertisement for New Orleans ghost tours. You'll hear ghost stories about some of New Orleans' most famous ghosts and our haunted houses. The Lullery Mansion, the Sultan's Palace, the Lafitte Blacksmith Shop are all famous haunts of New Orleans, and you're sure to hear about them while on the tour. However, there are untold number of ghost stories that you'll never find on a ghost tour. One of the unique aspects of living in New Orleans for someone who is deeply interested in ghosts and hauntings is the willingness of people to share their ghost stories with you. And believe me, everyone in New Orleans has a ghost story. Your bartender, waitress, the person cleaning your room at your hotel, they all have ghost stories. You should care to ask them about it. I guarantee it. If you have enough courage, next time you go into a bar in the French Quarter, ask your bartender if they know if their bar is haunted. 50 bucks, they'll tell you all about the paranormal happenings in the bar at night. Many southern cities and people who live in them tend to be a little bit more on the conservative side, not talking about or even admitting that they're, they have had a run-in with a ghost. Don't expect that attitude in New Orleans. Everyone in the Crescent City loves their ghosts and are more than happy to talk about them. My particular ghosts, I'm currently residing in Marigny, Marigny, a neighborhood just to the downriver side of the French Quarter. I can walk out the door and be in the French Quarter in a matter of minutes. It's a great location to live when you own a company that does ghost tours in the French Quarter. It is also one of the most haunted places I've ever lived. On any given night, I might be awoken by something being thrown onto my bed. I might run into one of the shadow people who roam my halls, or sometimes I even hear my name being whispered into my ear when no one else is around. The ghosts who live in my house are not terribly bothersome. Sometimes it is apparent that they are seeking attention with their noises, phantom footsteps, and moving things around. Sometimes I might go a week or more without hearing them, but they are always here, I have no doubt. While my house is no ghost tour route, 
it easily could be. The stories I could tell from my own experiences in this house are enough to send chills down anyone's spine. I would also, it would also be a great location for anyone wanting to do a ghost hunt. Trust me, I know. There are thousands of other houses in New Orleans just like mine. Haunted, but hidden safe away from prying eyes. Unless you talk to the residents of the house or the people who work at the business, you'll never know the building you're in. The house you're driving by could be one of the most haunted buildings in New Orleans. So if you do take a trip there, ask around. All right. The Ghostly Children of New Orleans. Here in New Orleans, you can't go for you can't go without coming across one of our haunted locations. Places like the infamous Lullery Mansion get the spotlight. However, there are many haunted locations that deserve to share that spotlight. And many of these locations are haunted by something that seems to make everyone a little uncomfortable. The ghosts of children or a child. Many of New Orleans haunted buildings are haunted by ghosts of children. A few of them really stand out. Out of all the cities that I've lived in and done paranormal investigations in, New Orleans seems to be to have a ridiculous number of ghost children walking around. I often wonder why this is. To be honest, I don't have a single answer, or at least a definite one. Throughout New Orleans history, children were often used as part of the labor force. Working in mills, cotton factories, tobacco factories, and more, these children lived a rough life. Unfortunately, sometimes these working conditions resulted in one of the children losing their lives. Maybe it's the workplace accident. Maybe it was some sort of catastrophic, such as a warehouse burning down. We know that children were often innocent victims of tragedies while working. This, more than other reasons, is why I believe so many of New Orleans buildings are often home of ghosts of children. Where did the children haunt? Throughout New Orleans, specifically the French Quarter, you'll find more than a few locations that have ghost stories with children haunting them. Too many to mention, as a matter of fact. So we have created a list of a few haunted locations in New Orleans where ghosts of children seem to have been more active and present. Let's start out with a location that has one of the most famous ghost stories in folklore about children haunting it, the Andrew Jackson Hotel. The Andrew Jackson Hotel has perhaps the most famous story about ghosts of children haunting it. A former boys' home in the early 1800s, the building which houses the Andrew Jackson has long history of housing children. Our best guess is that the ghost of these children can be traced back to its days as a boys' home. One of the stories that gets told about the Andrew Jackson Hotel is that the boys who haunt the hotel died in a fire. However, our researchers have not been able to find anything that suggests that this building actually burned down. As a matter of fact, we have evidence that completely contradicts this claim. While staying at the Andrew Jackson Hotel, many guests have reported hearing children playing in the hallways and in their rooms. Of course, when they go to look, there are no children there. A few people have even seen the apparition of a young boy, which fits what we know the history is. The Andrew Jackson Hotel is so haunted that we are holding one of our overnight ghost hunts there. The 
the Lafitte Guest House. The Lafitte Guest House, located on Bourbon Street in the heart of the French Quarter, also has more than a few ghosts haunting it. Ghosts of children seem to be a common topic when discussing the ghosts and hauntings of the Lafitte Guest House. Who are these children who haunt the guest house? Our best guess is that the two children, a boy and a young girl, actually lived in the building at some point. Throughout time, the building, which is now the Lafitte Guest House, was residential. This means that an untold number of families, with their children, who have lived there, it is possible that one of these children died in the home. Considering the death rate in the 1800s, New Orleans, it certainly is possible. While we cannot find any records that show this is what happened, common sense makes a good educated guess. When staying at the Lafitte guest house, requests one of the rooms in the front of the house is the best chance of encountering one of the ghostly children. You may be awoken in the middle of the night to the sounds of children playing in your room. If you get really lucky, you'll catch a glimpse of one of the ghost children of the Lafitte guest house. The Hotel Monteleon markets itself as the place where the French Quarter begins. It is also where many of New Orleans ghost stories come from, and many of those stories involve ghost children who haunt this hotel. Throughout the Hotel Monteleon, there are a number of areas in which ghost children have been seen. Most often, these ghost stories come from guests who are staying in the Monte Leon while visiting New Orleans. The sound of children playing in the hallway are a fairly common ghost event. When the guests who are hearing the sounds of children go to check on the situation, the sounds stop and there are no children there. These reports of paranormal activity are not limited to the hallways of this hotel. Even in the rooms themselves, people have encountered with the ghost children of the Hotel Monteleon. All right, the Ursuline Convent. Perhaps the most well-known story of vampires, total nonsense, and the casket girls, the Ursuline Convent has a long history of legitimate ghost stories and haunted happenings. Aside from the ghosts of nuns and other religious figures, which are said to be seen from time to time, the most famous paranormal activity at the convent is that of children. What really got this place on the list were two events that happened on our New Orleans all-ages ghost tour. A few months apart, both our guides and our guests reported hearing sounds of children playing in the courtyard of the Ursuline convent at 10 p.m. There were no children there. Everyone in the group moved closer to the gates, fully expecting the sound of children to actually be coming from somewhere else. Each step they took, the sounds of the ghostly only got louder and louder. There was only one explanation. These sounds and voices of the children playing were paranormal in nature. In addition to our ghost tour groups, there have been many other people who have reported hearing the ghosts of children or even occasionally seeing an apparition of a child at the convent. Almost always these spirits are seen and heard outside the building, not inside. This would make sense as the grounds would have had an untold number of children playing on the grounds. Most likely these hauntings are simply residual noises, the sounds of the past playing over and over again. 
In my knowledge, I'm not aware of any intelligent hauntings at the Ursuline Convent. But then again, you never know. The Haunted House on Gladi Gladiolus Street. Not every haunted location in New Orleans is well known, and one of our ghost tour routes. To be honest, some of the most interesting stories that we have come across when it comes to ghosts and hauntings are nowhere near the French Quarter. On Glado Gladios Gladiolus Street in Gentilly neighborhood, it's a small house that was built in the early 1900s. This single-story, two-bedroom house is one of the most haunted houses we've come across in New Orleans. While there, are numerous, while there are numerous ghosts which haunt this house, including that of a man who coughs at all hours of the night, the most interesting is that of a boy. Who is this ghostly child, and why is he haunting this house? We'd love to know. So we've spent almost 20 whole nights at this location trying to get to the bottom of the mystery. What we do know is that this ghost is the spirit of a young boy, probably around 10 years of age. He is a little prankster that links to, likes to audibly laugh when the homeowner does something, such as bang her toe on the couch. He is a little tattletale, seeming to be more than happy to dish out secrets about the rest of the ghosts which haunt the house. In one case, the homeowner strongly suspected the ghosts were causing her dog a lot of stress. There were times where her dog would be afraid to even come back into the house. Other times, the pup would curl up with her mom in bed, staring intently on the bathroom floor, trembling in fright. One evening, we decided to ask the ghosts if they, were, if they knew who was bothering the dog. Sure enough, the voice of the little boy came through on our recorders, telling us, He hits her. Who is her? We are not sure. We can only imagine that it's one of the other ghosts in the house as there's no living he in the house. Since that night, the owner of the house has made it clear that the ghosts who have taken up residence in her house should leave her dog alone. While her dog still seems very nervous from time to time, reacting to strange noises, watching unseen entities walk through the house, it seems like more serious issues revolving around her dog and ghosts have settled down. This may not have happen without the help of her ghost child, the little boy of Gladois Street in New Orleans. Alright, the Musée Conti Wax Museum. This is our most recent find here at Ghost City in New Orleans, prompted by the museum's closing in 19... In January 30th, 2016, our general manager, Gretchen, reached out to them to see if they'd be interested in allowing us the chance to investigate before their closing. Not only did we have, not only have we already investigated the museum, but we have, we have a public ghost hunt. On our private investigation, every group, single group, encountered the ghosts of children, whether it was the ghosts of ghostly voices of children, or even seeing small, ch ch like shadow people. The ghosts of children seemed to be filling the museum on the night we were there. To be honest, it was a little unsettling. We were not even aware the ghosts of children were haunting this French Quarter location. Aside from a few other voices, it seemed as if all of our interactions were the ghosts of children. The most interesting encounter happened upstairs near the ballroom. Gretchen and I were sitting in the hallway on the couch, 
There was a slight commotion in the hallway, the sound of movement, and the shadow of a child appeared out of nowhere. Gretchen heard the movement but did not see the shadow. I saw the shadow seemingly rise out of the floor. We looked at each other. I had thought that she had also seen it. She didn't. She was responding to the sound of the movement. What makes this even more interesting is that right before this happened, I recorded an EVP of a child responding to me. I had said, you know I cannot see you, but if you come up to me and talk, I can hear you. The voice responded, do you want to see me? To say that is was a once-in-a-lifetime experience would be pretty accurate. All right. Let's take a short break and get right back into the stories after this. All right, welcome back. Looking into the history of New Orleans and Mardi Gras, there is a dark side. Um, starting as a pagan festival back in Rome, all the way now to its now it's uh, Mardi Gras and passing out beads and all this kind of stuff. I uh, wanted to read you two stories about um, associated with Mardi Gras that were kind of ghosty, kind of creepy. The Northside Skull and Bone Gang. Imagine seeing a group of maskers parading down your street at 5.30 a.m. on Mardi Gras morning, dressed as skeletons, the leader wearing an antler helmet, all while loudly exclaiming, we come to remind you before you die, you better get your life together. Next time you see us, it's too late to cry. They knock on doors and windows. You better run outside so you can see them before they disappear until next year. The Northside Skull and Bone Gang is a tradition that's been held for over 200 years in the Treme. Rooted in African spirituality, meant to arise family spirits back from the cemetery to parade alongside their ancestors on Mardi Gras Day. You can witness this uniquely new Orleans Mardi Gras tradition by visiting the Black Street Cultural Museum at 5 a.m. on Fat Tuesday morning when they leave on their mission of spreading peace. You might hear the sound of drums beating or the Chief Bruce Sun Pie Barn shouting, if you don't live right, the bone man's coming for you. The Ghosts of Mardi Gras Past. The famed Arnaud restaurant was opened in 1918 by Count Arnaud Kazavinov, something like that. His beautiful daughter, Germaine, was just 16 at the time. Due to her father's immense wealth and fame, along with her unwavering beauty, Germaine was repeatedly crowned Queen of Mardi Gras, elected more times than any other woman in New Orleans history. One of her cr crowned years, she had the perfect Mardi Gras gown handmade just for her, so perfect, in fact, that she requested a duplicate gown that could, she could later be buried in. The elaborate horse-drawn carriage Easter parade on St. Louis Cathedral from Arnaud's was the, another claim to fame that Germaine started in 1956, inspired by the Easter strollers of the New York's Fifth Avenue that were popular at the time. Adorned in her favorite royal gown, Germaine Kazanov Wells' spirit is frequently seen moving about the Mardi Gras Museum inside of Arnaud's restaurant, where her memorabilia is lovingly displayed, including her past gowns resting on the shoulders of mannequins with her resemblance. 
even without her specter strolling about it is it sounds like visitors to the museum itself are enough to startle one at first her father's spirit likes to hang around the bar perhaps she is there to join him for a drink and celebrate their favorite holiday cool cool all right let's talk about the ghosts of new orleans brothels New Orleans' relationship with crime and vice started early on in the city's history, as in almost from the very start. Some historians would attribute the city's sinful ways to many of the colonists were criminals themselves, snatched from the streets of France and thrown onto a ship sailing to Nouvelle-Orleans. They were greeted by the French expeditioners, the wild, untamed swamps, and almost no women. The women thing was the last straw. Gradually, more women were brought to the burgeoning city. Some were respectable, some were, or most were not. But one thing was for certain. You can't take a port town and not expect some level of vice to pop up. After months at sea, sailors expected to see their baser needs were met as soon as they arrived on shore. With their sea legs still quivering, seamen decamped from the ship and roamed the French Quarter with a single-minded purpose, a meal and a woman, although we can't say in which order they preferred to attend to each. Where these starved men went depended on the particular decade throughout the 19th century, but they were almost always paying visit to the city's rapidly growing body house population. A quick history of prostitution districts in New Orleans. Gallatin Street, located where the French market is today, was one of the very first vice districts in the area. The houses were ramshackle lodgings composed of slapped together wood planks that threatened to crumble at any moment. A single breath of air, a single touch of the finger, the whole thing might just come crashing down. A little Gallatin motto for you, if you can make it on Gallatin, you can make it in New Orleans. Heck, if you, you could make it anywhere in all of the world, the street and its body and inhabitants were the definition of trouble. Gangs like the Live Oak Gang were responsible for all the sorts of violent crime, but the prostitutes themselves were the worst of them all. Women like Mary Jane Bricktop, Jackson, and Bridget Fury were known as the ladies of the night were not to be crossed, not if you wanted to keep your body in one piece and not be bludgeoned by an axe. A movement to sweep the area of crime erupted in the late 1860s, and Gallatin Street soon closed its doors as clientele dispersed further into the Vieux Carrer. All right, the ghosts of Smoky Row. Soon another district came to light known as Smoky Row. It was located in the back of the French Quarter between Bineville and the Conti Streets along Burgundy Street. Like Gallatin, Smoky Row was just as dangerous. So as, so much so that the police often refused to patrol the area because they were harassed and attacked by women who worked the streets. If at all possible, the cribs and dens or brothels were even smaller, less assuming than those along the riverfront of Gallatin Street. Smoky Row earned its name from the black women who worked as prostitutes there. The women of Smoky Row were often known to charge as little as 15, 20 cents per john. Many chose to sit outside on wooden crates, spitting wads of tobacco on the ground as they waited for potential customers to pass by. 
10 cents they'd offer 10 cents for men who didn't mind a bit of public exhibition and would do the deed right on the street for the prostitutes who were desperate or cunning enough they would snatch men right off the street drag them into the crib and divest them of all their money and belongings police sometimes were called to the bordellos to investigate but the bodies of the men were never found new orleans was horrified it was that utter shock that helped lead the creation of the sanctioned red light district, infamous Storyville, home of women like Josie Arlington, as well as jazz musicians such as Louis Armstrong. From 1897 to 1917, Basin Street, located along the back perimeter of the French Quarter, became a hub of vice and sin. Opulent brownstones like the Arlington, the Star Mansion, and the Number 21 were major hits, where men were willing to pay nearly $20, $50 a night. The prostitutes, as they said, were of the highest quality, and for the madams, well, many of them became some of the richest people in the city. If they weren't murdered prematurely, that is. It goes without saying that many of the prostitutes and madams of the vice-ridden districts have not left the city of New Orleans, choosing to be stuck or to haunt the French Quarter even after death. Here are some of the more ghostly or more famous madams who continue to wreak havoc on the living here in the French Quarter. All right, the ghostly madams of the French Quarter. May Bailey at May Bailey's Place. Today, May Bailey's Place belongs to the historic Dauphine Orleans Hotel. It's a quaint bar with a burnished gold accents and lovely Victorian wallpaper. Along the back wall of the building, a piece of the bar's history is strung up with pride. It's the old 19 or 1857 license legalizing May Bailey's as the first sporting house in the city of New Orleans. May Bailey herself had immigrated to New Orleans from the Emerald Isles sometime in the 1840s. She was accompanied by her Irish father and her young sister. It was incredibly unfortunate that most, almost immediately upon arriving in the Crescent City, her father succumbed to yellow fever. With little resources and even fewer options, May approached her father's friend about embarking on a new business venture. You see, May wished to open a sporting house, a much fancier brothel. Her father's friend agreed probably tempted as he was by the lucrative thought of making money, and loaned May the necessary blunt to open the sporting house. From the very first moment, May Bailey's place became the spot to be seen. Trained women danced and sang, soldiers visited, and sailors did too. And today, May Bailey's seems to cater to these same people. Over a century after the sporting house was established, guests have walked into the bar for a cocktail, only to see brochures and books in the bar's mini bar mini library flies off the racks and shelves. Employees talk of the front door slamming shut and even one of the bar stools levitating off the ground. There are also rumors of a ghostly soldier still walking the exterior courtyard pacing back and forth, back and forth. Was he perhaps a man of high rank during the Civil War? Is he still waiting for someone who might never come to meet him in the afterlife? A female spirit has also been spotted on the upper floor, always dressed in a white gown, leaving some to suspect is the specter might be the ghost of May Bailey's younger sister, who adamantly despised having to live in a brothel.
A romantic at heart, she imagined castles and loving marriages. When she met a soldier and fell deeply in love, she could not wait to marry the man. Only her beloved never returned from war, it said, leaving her to wait in heartbreak as she realized her dream of escaping the brothel would never come to fruition. With the old photos of May Bailey's girls hung up on the walls, it's easy to see that May Bailey's place might now cater to more respectable clientele with a fondness for a scandalous past, but that it's its ghosts have not yet forgotten what this building once was, nor are they ever willing to let go even in death. Eliza Riddle at the White Elephant in today's day and age, the white elephant no longer exists. Instead, the, proper lead, the property directly across the street from May Bailey's place now goes by the Herman House and belongs to the Dauphine Orleans Hotel. This makes sense knowing the area which Dauphine Orleans sits once was the center of vice in the 19th century. But while May Bailey's was a classy establishment where gents went likely to pay anywhere from 10 to $50 to spend the night with one of the girls, well, the women at the White Elephant were certainly not the same caliber. It was a rough and tumble place where prostitutes generally standing in the doorway in order to coerce men to come in and join. And while women across the street probably only worked for May Bailey, the ladies at the White Elephant owed their loyalty to no one, no one but themselves. Perhaps the most famous crook and prostitute was none other than Eliza Riddle, a woman of mixed descent who was a, as violent as she was cunning. On three separate occasions, Eliza reported in the was reported in the Times as beating up another woman. <laughs> Two instances were against the same woman, Virginia Reed, who had the bad luck to be conked over the head with a glass bottle each time. Another victim of Eliza's fury was a prostitute living on Burgundy Street. Apparently, she said something so heinous that Eliza grabbed a lamp from the woman's side table and proceeded to put it to good use. Eliza's crime spree didn't stop there. She was arrested 24 times in the span of 16 years, considering she spent 10 years in prison for stealing $500 from a man who paid her a visit. 24 arrests in six years is a bit excessive. So, so excessive, actually, that journalists for the Times, uh, Picayune, had an ongoing bet about when Eliza would end up next, end up in the prison for antics, including swindling Johns, random acts of violence, or attempted escape from jail. It's no wonder that the Herman House on the Delphine Orleans Hotel is quite haunted. Guests of this section of the hotel have reported hearing sounds of music wafting through the air, experience sudden cold spots even when the AC is turned down low. There have been reports of guests' room lights flicking on and off and sounds of feet padding over the soft carpet. Is this the paranormal phenomena, the result of the white elephant and the women who once worked there? It's tough to say without holding a proper investigation, but one thing is for certain. The Delphine Orleans Hotel routinely is rated as one of the most haunted hotels in the city. Normal Wallace at 1026 Conti Street. Mississippi-born Normal Wallace moved to New Orleans with her mother and brother around the turn of the 20th century. By the age of 12, Norma knew exactly what she wanted to be when she grew up, a brothel owner. 
She once exclaimed that she would rather be a madman or a madame in which she had complete autonomy than be a prostitute in direct reliant upon a man. And Norma never was reliant upon any man. With her career goals in sight, she traveled to New York City and to Chicago to study under some of the most famous madames during the early 1910s. When she returned to New Orleans, she opened up her own brothel in 1026 Conti and saw nearly immediate success. She opened around 1917 when the rest of the red light district was being shut down, but Norma was never caught. When rumors touched her that a police raid was on the horizon, she had her girls haul a ladder between her building and the next bar next door, and the women and men all scampered over the rungs into the neighboring saloon. No one was ever the wiser. Norma's father continued to thrive. It did so when her maficio lover, angry that she had decided to part ways with him, shot her in front of the brothel itself. Their affair then ended, naturally, and he was the closest man in Norma's life to ever distract her from her lofty ambitions. Unfortunately, Norma nearly lost all her money when the banks collapsed in 1930. Following that interlude, she realized she could never trust the banks and proceeded to stash her money in the secret drawers of the brothel itself. It was not until the 1960s that Norma's brothel-owning days came crashing to an end. She ended up in jail for a bit in 1963, and not long after, she decided to convert the parlor into an Italian restaurant. Norma's establishment was the last open, openly run brothel in the city, but unfortunately, Norma did not see the fruits of all of the glory. One night, when she was staying in her country house, her best friend called with troubling news. Norma's much younger husband was having an affair. So infuriated, Norma grabbed a pistol and shot herself in the head. She died immediately and is said that 1026 Conti Street is still haunted. With seven apartments today, just like the seven rooms during its brothel days, people can still smell the scent of her cigarette smoke wafting in the air. Whether fantastical or not, there have been paranormal reports of people hearing the tinkling of cocktail glasses and the sound of husky laughter and gentle music. Has the spirit of Norma Wallace ever left the property that was her pride and joy? We'll never know. All right. Um, I think that's all for the paranormal brothels. So let's take a short break and be right back at it after this. The Axeman Murders of New Orleans. He strolls down the street his shadow slender and contorted in front of him. The clickety-clack of his shiny black oxford smacked the cobblestone and mule hooves like the mule hooves and carriages of the French Quarter. Smiling and content, he glances around the neighborhood, filled with the sound of live jazz music from every direction. Seeing a song that's both lively and tragic, their notes carry through that Mississippi breeze out onto the bayou, through the veins of the dark crescent city. The windows of the Creole cottages and stately homes adorned in their painted columns, colorful wood shutters and petite gardens are peeled open, exposing themselves lustfully to the mysterious demon parading by. He closes his eyes and takes a long, deep breath of fresh air and sigh. 
I love me some jazz, he says to himself in a dip, deep, rich voice, tipping his slouch hat as at passersby and giving them a confident nod. He says to himself, they listened. There will be no dark and damnable deeds tonight. With the images of his borrowed bloody axe flashing through his consciousness, he sets down his trumpet case and pulls out a fresh cigarette and a matchstick from his breast pocket, cusps his hands and lights it. He leans with one shoulder into a brick wall, puffing smoke rings into the damp air, and watches New Orleans pass by in all her ghastly glory. Looking back on the week before, he recalls chipping away at the back door of of the corner shotgun house in the silent Gretna neighborhood and kicking in the corner panel to reach in and unlock the do doorknob, letting himself in. He walks slowly through the connecting dark rooms, pausing for a moment in front of the living room doorway, listening for faint sounds of sleep, careful not to drag the heavy wooden axe along the floor and overthrow his momentum. The grasshoppers and frogs are chirping loudly outside. They're soft but powerful hums like jazz notes. He can sway his axe, too. He approaches the bedroom, cracked open just enough to peer in and put his ear to the painted wood panel, holding his breath. Sleep, he whispers. He opens the door so silently and slowly as to not wake his innocent victims, and he smirks in the complete satisfaction with himself. He taps his shiny black oxford against the corner of the bed frame and raises his arm to strike. He flashes to a vision of the axe dripping with fresh blood, quickly coagulating as the drips down the as the drips become slower and thicker. He pauses for a moment and wonders if he should put the axe back where he found it in the garden shed or leave it next to the not so cold family of corpses. Deciding to take it with him, he saunters to the ice box in the kitchen and pours a fresh glass of chilled milk. After leisurely gulping, he washes and puts away the glass and uses his sleeve to erase the white liquid from his lips, then cleans himself with the blood splatter screwed, strewed across his face and forearms with a dish towel from the kitchen sink. He puts the dirty towel inside of his trumpet case and walks out, closing the door behind him and leaves the rusty dripping axe against the doorframe as a gesture of politeness that surely the police will find amusing. Tipping his hat as he leaves, he says to himself, Good night, sweet angel of death. In the dark of night, the axeman slays. He walks slowly through the crisp, early spring air of the city, like a swampy sludge on the blackest sphere. He knows that what he has done and who called him to do it. A demon in the night, dead of night, his bloody work finished. Thirty years after Jack the Ripper, Ravish the east of London with his shardy bloody blade, the axemen of New Orleans terrified an unsuspecting city to its core and caused widespread panic. He was perhaps the only serial killer since Ripper who wrote mockingly to the media about his grisly ventures, labeled as America's own Bayou, Bayou Jack the Ripper. The axeman is known to have assaulted 12 innocent people of which five were slain in the Crescent City in its suburbs between May 1918 and October 1919. His modus operandi borrowed acts from his own victims. He bludgeoned them while helpless and sleeping soundly in their beds. Throats slashed and heads bashed in and nearly decapitated, 
were just some of the descriptions used in the police reports. Many homes were ransacked, but nothing of value was ever taken from the victims' households. Other than non-permissive use of their own axes and the lives it violently took, most of the victims were Italian descent and owned Italian grocery stores. This led to the belief that the killer was part of the mafia. The dreaded and mysterious Axeman of New Orleans and his violent agenda disappeared in the autumn of 1919 as suddenly and hastily as they arrived. The fearful midnight murder was never apprehended and his identity remains a mystery to this day. Found dead in bed, the victims of the Axeman. Many of the Axeman's victims were Italian grocers. Did he have prejudice against these immigrant family? Did they offend, ridicule, or hurt him in some way? Or was it just random acts of violence? The world may never know. We do know that those who survived his attacks were left with a gas ghostly vision for the rest of their lives of a dark man wielding a heavy axe over their beds and raining down strength upon their sleeping bodies. Hell, March 13th, 1990, 1919. In March of 1919, the New Orleans-based Times newspaper received a taunting letter from the supposed Axeman. He revealed his love of jazz and proposed the citizens of New Orleans to jazz it in their homes the eve of St. Joseph's Day, a major holiday for Italians, or get the axe. The letter reads, Hell, March 13th, 1990. Esteemed mortals of New Orleans, they have never caught me and they never will. They have seen me, they have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you, New Orleans, and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with blood and brains of he whom I sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a re reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Joseph, Francis Joseph, etc., but tell them to be aware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it will be better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't know there is any need for such warning. I don't think there is any need for such warning, for I feel the police will always dodge me, as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you New Orleans think of me as the most horrible murderer, which I am but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit upon your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, or the worst, for I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15 earthly time on next Tuesday night, I'm going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, that it, 
that is that some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave warmth of my native Tartarus, it is about time I leave your earthly home. I will cease my discourse, hoping thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that existed, either in fact or realm of fantasy, the Axeman. 12.15 o'clock, Tuesday, March 18th. The residents and revelers of New Orleans jazzed it like they'd never jazzed it before. Restaurants, clubs, bars were overflowing with patrons who felt their lives depended on it. Every musician, whether they had been booked or not, was contracted. Every neighbor, friend, family member, and stranger were gathered together surrounding the jazz trios and full bands, playing their hearts out that night. Every saxophone, trumpet, trombone... Tr drum, clarinet, violin, and piano in the city was humming to a tune just for the Axeman's infatuated ear. Inspired by the letter from the Times, one auspicious composer named Joseph John de Villa claimed to have composed the mysterious Axeman's jazz, Don't Scare Me Papa, while waiting for the Axeman. A bit of a self-promoter, by that Thursday mor morning he was offering the sheet music for sale at at a price. His business maneuver was so shrewd that many thought he could have written the letter himself as part of a marketing ploy to sell his composition. Composition On March 19th, St. Joseph's Day, the time printed an illustration depicting a family frantically playing jazz music from their piano while looks of sheer terror on their faces as they waited for the Axeman to pass over the city. The article describes all the jazzy festivities across the metropolitan area and the fact that the Axeman did not strike that evening. Mr. Davila would later use this very illustration as a cover of his well-known published sheet music. Interesting. So New Orleans has had a rocky past. It's filled with paranormal, yes, but also some gruesome stuff. All right, let's take a short break and get right back into it after this. Witchcraft in New Orleans. There's no shortage of supernatural, mystical, paranormal, voodoo, and what could be called spiritual eccentrics in New Orleans. The city's history is rich in diversity and challenges, all of which are reflected in the tapestry of culture. When you begin to look at voodoo and traditional European witchcraft, the similarities are astounding, even through their foundations, even though their foundations are world apart. A witch is a witch is a witch. There are witches in New Orleans, all kinds of witches. American Horror Story made sure that the Crescent City is up there next to Salem, Massachusetts, when it comes to witchery history casting spells. But the girls honing their craft at Miss... Robichaux's Witch Academy and AHS aren't exactly the accurate description or depiction of what has been brewing in the city's cauldron for centuries. Marie Laveau is undoubtedly the most famous witch to have called New Orleans home. To be more accurate, Miss Laveau was known as the Voodoo Queen. Is there really a difference between voodoo and witchcraft? There is. 
but there are some glaring similarities as well. It all comes down to de the details, different words with similar meanings, tweaks and twists to rituals and practices. And even though the roots are continents apart, the intention through worship and service are the same. It's a voodoo thing. Louisiana voodoo is its own thing. It's not hoodoo or Haitian voodoo, but just like most beliefs and practices, they share a foundation. Their differences are adaptations influenced by the culture and communities that raise their spiritual leaders. Voodoo landed in Louisiana during the colonial period. The enslaved persons from West Africa and Sub-Sahara brought their culture and beliefs to Louisiana. Their practice included working with roots and herbs, creating and using charms and amulets, as well as honoring and worshiping their ancestors. These practices combined with Catholicism, the Catholic Church had a considerable part in colonizing Louisiana, became the core Louisiana voodoo. A voodoo practitioner was basically combining ingredients and rewriting recipes using the traditions of their ancestors and the rituals of Catholicism. You might find the powder of a root combined with the herbs and holy water under the watchful eye of a crucifix and blessed with sacred incense. Many times, Jesus Christ can be called upon for the final evocation in the ritual. The blending of African voodoo and Catholicism is what many practice palatable for many European transplants and first-generation Louisianans. Ancestors and spirit guides are essential elements of voodoo. The rev reverence and respect for elders was brought over from West Africans, which was merged into the Catholic practice of praying through saints. It's believed that Louisiana voodoo adopted many of the saints as their own, using saints and spirits in their practice. Oftentimes, these spirits are conjured through music, dance, and chanting, with the intention of bringing the spirit through the individual, a kind of welcome possession. Voodoo queens, the female leaders in the religion, are powerful influencers and thought of as guides and healers. These women lead spectacular ceremonies with dance, ritual dancing, song, prayer to worship their deities, their ancestors, and their loa, which are spirit guides. Though they're spirit guides, they hold the answers to problems, recipes for healing, and charms for protection. They were and still are counselors, shamans, life coaches, and spiritual crusaders for, the, for those who are lacking in faith or in need of guidance. Sounds pretty witchy, doesn't it? Fast forward to 20th century witchcraft. Witches have historically and culturally gotten a bad rap until recently. We are beginning to see a resurgence of folks coming out of the broom closet. The age of Aquarius was the last time we saw a rise in the esoteric arts. Blame it on LaVey's Church of Satan or Stevie Nicks' Gold Dust Woman. Either way, 1968 seated more than the summer of love. It wasn't just the West Coast exploring their religious freedoms. New Orleans was about to expand the city's witchy reputation publicly and not only acknowledge voodoo as a religious practice, but also recognize witchcraft. Mary Wunda Toops set the witch wheels in motion in 1972. The state of Louisiana chartered Mary and gave her a certificate for the religious order of witchcraft, officially recognizing witchcraft as a religion. The ordained high priestess was now the leader of an incorporated organized religion with nonprofit status. America's witches have come a long way. 
1910, not that long before the religious order of witchcraft got their state-issued practicing rights, a woman was arrested and convicted of witchcraft. She was caught in the neighbor's barn supposedly casting evil, evil spells on the farmer's cows. It's safe to assume that the witchy woman was not practicing her incantations in or near New Orleans. She would have had clients lined up for her services in the bayou, provided her spells achieved their goals. Bottom of the Cup Tea Room opened its doors in the French Quarter in 1929. Back then, and for most of the 1900s, it was illegal to take money for fortune-telling, so they would charge for tea and biscuits, and your fortune was on the house. It's rumored that politicians from all over the state would stop in for the Bottom of the Cup Tea Room for a little mystical guidance before an election season. It's no wonder Mary Wunda Toops found her way from Meridian, Mississippi, to the Crescent City. She knew she'd be welcome in the home of voodoo, tea leaves, and soothsayers. A Witch in New Orleans White magic, black magic, green witch, swamp witch, the list is long and diverse, but none of are more witchy than the other. New Orleans has a lovely menagerie of witches, all welcome to worship, practice, cast, heal, and read of their mystical heart's desire. Priestess Mary Wunda Toops knew she would find her place in the arms of the Big Easy. Priestess Mary was a practicing white witch, meaning that she didn't practice black magic or the dark arts, though they are often written by members of her inner circle that claim something different. In 1971, she opened up the Witch's Workshop at 521 St. Philip Street in the French Quarter. She sold candles, sprays, oils, and even a few things that are a bit more specific, like bat hearts, which are said to be great for those who like to gamble, etc. In a 1972 interview with journalist Horace Sutton, she explained, It's important to sell people the whole dried bat so that they can be confident it's the real thing not some old chicken heart, a witch with integrity. In the footsteps of Marie Laveau, Priestess Mary held ceremonies on the shores of Lake Pontchartrain, Pontchartrain, however you say that. The city of New Orleans granted her a permit to conduct rituals and ceremonies in City Park, much like her predecessor Marie Laveau did 100 years earlier, as she was extremely popular for who could particular on who could join her coven. She wasn't interested in drug-abusing hippies that found their way to an alternative lifestyle. She told the Ophelius Day world, there are high-caliber witches, and those were the ones who were part of her order. If you are an American Horror Story fan, you might have caught a reference to Mary during coven season. If you don't remember her name being mentioned, you surely remember the infamous Madame Delphine LaLaurie. Mary held a seance at LaLaurie Mansion and claimed to make contact with an infamous and notorious Madame LaLaurie. Today, tickets are to be a part of Madame LaLaurie seance would sell out in record time. To many, Mary Undetoops is the most powerful witch to have practiced in New Orleans. She educated herself in many religions of the world, interpreting and applying scripture from religious texts, including the Bible, into her studies and practice. Her Western ceremonial magic was steeped in tradition, as well as heavily influenced by Crowley's Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. But at the core of 
her belief in craft, she promoted actively being your best through knowledge, harnessing your power for good, even if her means of good could be perceived as on the fringe. In 1977, a mummified severed head was found in the trash bin of her abandoned occult shop. She was questioned about the head. She explained that she was a practitioner of Egyptian magic and a witch, and she threw the head away because she could feel it had bad vibrations. Obviously, Mary wasn't concerned with the consequences. Perhaps she knew there would be none. Mary Unta Toops passed away in September of 1981. Good luck finding her obituary or burial information. Current members of the New Orleans Religious Order of Witchcraft say she was taken at the age of 53 by a brain tumor. Famous New Orleans musician and the night tripper himself, Dr. John, claims in his autobiography that Mary died from her enemies poisoning her. Like a true witch, she left this world with a little mystery, a little curiosity, and a lot of reference. Reverence. Right. Interesting story on witchcraft. All right. Let's take a short break and get right back in it after this. All right. Now, by now, we've established that New Orleans is a city with a rich and dark history. Many believe that the city is among the most haunted in the United States. Uh, what I'm about to read to you below are a few of reported hauntings and legends behind them. And I definitely want to check some of these out um, in New Orleans someday. First on the agenda is LaLaurie Mansion. Many have heard the tale of Madame LaLaurie and her torture chamber in Royal Street. The origin of the ghostly tale begins in 1831 when Dr. Louis LaLaurie and Delphine moved into a Creole mansion in the French Quarter. Following a fire in the mansion's kitchen, the horrors of the home were revealed. Legend has it that the, behind a barred door in the attic was a torture chamber for those she enslaved. Many stories detail the cruelty involved. Men and women chained to the walls, children shut inside cages, and body parts strewn across the floor. Lullery later fled to Paris, believed to be run from town by an outraged mob. Tales of lingering are said to be haunt their grounds. Others say the ghost of Delphine Lullery herself haunts the mansion. Unfortunately, you most likely won't get a peek inside this private residence. However, most haunted tours in the area include this stop. Next up is St. Louis Cemetery Number 1. Established by the Spanish in 1789, many of the city's early occupants and infamous personalities are interred here, including Marie Laveau. It has been named the most haunted cemetery in the United States. Pirates, aristocrats, politicians, killers, artists, and the Queen of Voodoo herself are interred on the grounds. With over so many dead interred, it's no wonder the cemetery has heard its fair share of ghost stories. Phantom figures and yellow fever victims reportedly stalk the rows of crypts. However, the most famous spirit to believe to roam the grounds is Marie Laveau. New Orleans Queen of Voodoo. 
Some believe that Laveau materializes annually on St. John's Eve to lead the voodoo faithful in worship. According to new rules, a licensed tour guide must accompany all visitors to the cemetery. All right, Lafitte, Lafitte, uh, blacksmith shop bar. Built sometime between 1722 and 1732, Lafitte's blacksmith shop bar is reputed to be the oldest structure used as a bar in the United States and is one of the city's oldest surviving buildings. From 1772 to 1791, the property was believed to have been used by Jean and Pierre Lafitte. It was used as a New Orleans base for their Barataria smuggling op operations, according to legend. A French-American pirate and privateer, Jean Lafitte, plundered the waters of the Gulf of Mexico. Some stories claim the buccaneer's treasure is buried in the building's bricks. A fireplace grate in the downstairs of the bar is rumored to be the resting place of some of the plunder. Some say a pair of ghostly red eyes can be seen staring from the grate. Others, other legends say the ghost of a pirate guarding the treasure haunts the bar. And some even also say that the spirit of Jean Lafitte himself roams the tavern. Hotel Monteleone. Built in 1886, the Beaux-Arts style Hotel Monteleone in the French Quarter is known for its rotating carousel piano bar and lounge. It's also known as one of the premier haunted hotels in New Orleans. The hotel reportedly has restaurant doors that open and closes every night, even though it's locked. Elevators stop on wrong floors, leading vi visitors down eerie, chilly halls. Legends state that a former employee, a man named William Red Wildemir, died inside the hotel of natural causes. Victor's... Or... <laughs> Victor's... Visitors report seeing him inside. A toddler spirit named Maurice is also said to roam the halls. He allegedly died in the hotel, and his distraught parents returned frequently in hopes he might visit them. Although not in New Orleans, the Murdo's Plantation is just a short day trip from the city. The Antebellum Plantation sits on St. Francisville, Louisiana. It is tutored to be one of... America's most haunted homes. Since it was built in 1796, it has been the home of many prominent figures. It's said to be haunted by over a dozen spirits and ghosts. Some claim that the home has seen 10 murders on the grounds. However, historical records show just one. In the 1800s, William Winter was shot and killed on the porch of the home. His killer is unknown. Aside from Winter, numerous other figures reportedly haunt the grounds. The home is said to be built on an Indian burial ground. Others say it's haunted by ghosts of prior slaves and young children. Two particularly frightening stories stem from photographs showing alleged spirits and ghosts. According to the plantation's website, a young slave girl known as Chloe was photographed on the grounds of the plantation. Another photo depicts what appears to be a young antebellum girl staring out of a window behind two visitors. The Tableau. Housed in Old Lapeat Theater, Tableau hosts a wide selection of ghosts. Union soldiers, a theater manager, a nun, and an actress who committed suicide 
are just a few of the many spirits that haunt the restaurant and bar. Doors mysteriously blowing open and shutting, closing, and bottles of wine flying off the shelves are just some of the ways the spirits make their presence known. The Sylvian. According to New Orleans psychic medium Carrie Roy, the resident ghost at Sylvian is Aunt Rose, who had been a madam in Storyville, the red light district of New Orleans during the late 1800s to early 1900s. Aunt Rose used this location as her personal home. There's a cocktail named for her, and the guests can feel her presence when she is summoned by making this drink. Bartenders feel her watching over them and have reported items that move by themselves. The Jamani, according to New Orleans psychic medium Kari Roy, one of New Orleans' premier late-night haunts is active, actually haunted. On July 24, 1973, some, someone set fire to the upstairs of the Jamani Lounge, killing 32 men. Considered one of the most horrific hate crimes, it was a gay bar at the time. Many workers and patrons can still feel the spirits of those who pass there. All right. And that's it for that article. Uh, let's take a short break and then get into some of the backstory on Papa Legba. The Myth and Legend of Papa Legba by Sarah Beth Weiss. The most popular voodoo or voodoo deity and gatekeeper to the spirit world, Papa Legba is one of the Loa, a group of spirits associated with daily life in the Haitian voodoo religion and voodoo belief system. He is probably one of the best known and most beloved deities in African spirituality and is thought to stand between the man and the spirit world. He is known as the Lord of the Roads, God of the Crossroads, and the Great Communicator. He is known to have a gift for all speech, being able to talk to any human language. Legba is often depicted as an older man with a cane, dressed in tattered rags, smoking a pipe, wearing a straw hat. Often with his dog by his side, he is associated with crossroads, gateways, locks, door doors and su as such can be asked to help asked for help by his worshipers in their bid to find new paths different roads and opportunities he can help to remove obstacles that lay in the person's way but he has also been portrayed as a trickster and one to be wary of papa legba originated from the originated with the fawn people of dahomey benin in africa Many Africans were captured and brought to North America to be used as slaves. They brought with them their spiritual beliefs and practices, although these had to be kept hidden from their slave masters. Among them was the view that the world was created by the supreme being, the Bondi, or Bondi, or good God. His children were the Loa and came from different families, including the Petro, the Gid, and the Rada. Papa Legba had became popular with enslaved people in Haiti, the Caribbean, and the American colonies as the gatekeeper between worlds. Only through him could people reach the Loa and ultimately Bondi. Bondi. 
He held the power to allow communication with the spirit world. Only through him could it be achieved. As well as having the gift of language, he was known as a protector of children, a fertility god, and a warrior. Legba also taught humans how to interpret oracles and is known to protect prophets. Papa Legba has been likened to St. Peter in the Christian religion, as he is the gatekeeper to heaven and holds the keys to heaven and hell. He is also known by other names in different parts of the world. In Cuba, the crossroads deity is known as Elegua, and in Serene, the spirit is more commonly known as Exu in Brazil. Worshipping the Vidal spirit, Legba shares the messages and wisdom of the Loa. People can ask him for his help and aid in other spirits with offerings, petitions, and prayers. Papa Legba is said to be one who takes these prayers to the other Loa. He must be honored first during a ceremony, as it is he who will open the door to communication with the spirits. Offering him Offerings to him include coffee, cane syrup, alcohol, tobacco, and candy. And he must be thanked after communicating with the spirits so that he closes the door to the spirit world. Legba is also the god of travel, and Haitians often call on him before embarking on a long journey. As guardian of the crossroads, Legba warns the dangers of evil spirits that may lurk in places where the veil is thin. Although once banned, Vidal is now a recognized religion in Haiti, even though its practices remain shrouded in mystery. All right, this one is Meet Papa Legba, the devilish voodoo figure of American Horror Story fame by Amy Lamoureux. He may look creepy, but he's actually more of a fatherly figure. Let's see. Has a lot of... Okay. This part says he walks with a limp because he walks in two worlds at once, the world of the living and the world of the spirits. And the cane that he leans on is not an ordinary cane. It is actually the gateway between the human world and the heavens. And this basically says what we've already learned about him interceding with the Loa for us. Okay. So that's a little history on Papa Legba, as seen on American Horror Story. A little bit different take. Um, I hope you've enjoyed our brief history of New Orleans and the creepiness that it entails. I know I definitely want to make a trip and check it out myself one day. Um, I have no doubt there will be plenty to do um, in that city. So, with that being said, that's it for today's episode. I hope you guys have enjoyed it. If you want to follow us, uh, join our Facebook page at Paranormal Stories, Spooky Shiz in parentheses. Join us there. Um, and then, if you have any stories yourself, please feel free to share, post. It's a safe space to do so. Or if you want to remain anonymous... You can always message me myself and send me your story and I'll post it for you or read it here on the podcast. All right. Until next time, stay spooky, my friends.